So tonight, we want to continue our lessons on what we teach about God. And last week, I did an introduction to that, and that message is posted online, so I will not uh, go back through that. But it was really just a call to, to know God, to search, him, to search for Him in His Word, because that's where we're going to learn about Him, learn the specifics about Him, is, is through His Word. So tonight... We want to dig into our doctrinal statement and begin digging in. So what I'll do is I'll just read the doctrinal statement. And I, I had copies made and I left them at home. So it doesn't do any good. My apologies. Uh, so you can look it up on your phones if you want. It is on the website if you want something visual as I'm going through this. But I'm just simply going to read it. I won't, I won't mention all the scripture references. And then we're going to go through each scripture reference. Um, and we'll just see how far we get tonight, and whatever we don't, we don't, we don't get to tonight, we will continue with the next Wednesday. So it's my plan just to continue working through our doctrinal statement for at least for, uh, for a little while. So that'll be the main main course of what we do on Wednesday. And I just want to help you understand what we teach, and tonight just understand what we teach about about God. So let me just start with reading. The first paragraph in our doctrinal statement, what we teach about God. We teach that there is but one living and true God, an infinite, all-knowing spirit, perfect in all his attributes, one in essence, eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each equally deserving worship and obedience. So let's just start with the first part. We'll look at this sometimes line, uh, phrase by phrase, sentence, sentence by sentence. So the first, first statement uh, is that there is but one living and true God. So here we reference uh, Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is one. So you, more commonly you would hear it reference the Lord, our, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. So... Um, the Lord being reference to your use of Yahweh's personal name, the uh, Lord's personal name, Yahweh. So he is our God, and he is only one God. It's not three gods, but, but one. That's a critical aspect of who God is. Uh, another verse we reference is Isaiah 45, verses 5 to 7, which says, I am Yahweh, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I will gird you, though you have not known me that they may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. I am Yahweh, and there is no other, the one forming light and creating darkness, producing peace and creating calamity. I am Yahweh who does all these. So again, emphasizing, God's word emphasizes that there is but one God. There are many false gods. There are demons who masquerade as, as gods here on earth, but there is only one God. All right? There's not one God for the Christians. There's just one God, period. It's not one God for the Jews, one God for the Christians, one God for Islam. There is only one God, and that's very clear in Scripture. And in this passage, he says he's the one forming light, and creating darkness. So he's the one that controls all that. He created it, and he is producing peace and creating calamity. So it's kind of encompassing uh, light and darkness, uh, peace and calamity. So it's, it's bookending, everything between those. They're extremes. 
everything between that, God creates and God controls. Uh, to go to the New Testament, we could go to verses like 1 Corinthians 8, 4. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world and there is no God but one. Again, the Apostle Paul reiterates, there is but one God. You can't find uh, anybody more strong on the Trinity than the Apostle Paul, but he's saying there's one God, yet there's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We'll get to each person of the Trinity and, and talking about that. We're, we're talking about the unity of God. When I went through the series on the, on the uh, Trinity, we talked about also the simplicity of God. That's something to always keep in mind. The simplicity of God does not mean that he is simple, but that he is undividable. He is not made of component parts. You can't take his love and put it over there. You can't take his wrath and put it over there. You can't take his, his justice and put it over there or his mercy and put it over here. And you put all these together and you have God. No, God, God is mercy. God is love. God is justice. And he is simple in the fact that he can't be taken apart uh, into, into pieces or into components. So and Paul is saying there that, that there are these demons that masquerade as gods, but there really is no other gods. And so when someone is caught in a, uh, like a, a false religion, demons will masquerade as gods. They will show them things that, that are supernatural, that convince them they're on the right way, but really they're just being misled. And we, we know Scripture says in, in 2 Corinthians that Satan masquerades as an angel of light. So he is just deceiving people into thinking that they're on the right way when they're on the wrong way. So that's, that's what, what Paul's very clear. There's but one God. And, and, and to these, some other verses that are not mentioned in our doctrinal statement but are pertinent to this. You think of John 17, 3. This is Jesus himself saying this. Uh, in his prayer to the Father. He said, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So just think about what he's saying. He's affirming that there's only one God. He's praying to the Father and Jesus Christ. So if Jesus wasn't God, that statement, that prayer would be blasphemy because he's putting himself uh, in an equal place with, with the Father. So Jesus himself affirms that there is but one God. We also teach that God is an infinite, all-knowing spirit. And John 4.24 is a good verse for this, where uh, in the Gospel of John we read that God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. And we talked a bit last time in our introduction how God rejects false worship. There are there are ways that people invent, they invent their own way to worship God, and all these are rejected by God in, in most strict terms. He is not impressed by them. He, uh, we are not to be inventive and come up with new ways to worship God. We are to worship Him in and, and the ways that He has ordained and um, in, through the, the means that He has provided, and that is through our Lord Jesus Christ. And the idea of, of spirit it really meaning that it, it originates from the heart. The heart has to be transformed. He's not interested in the uh, just an outward form of worship. He wants worship from our innermost being. Uh, God is perfect in all his attributes, one in essence, eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each e equally deserving worship and obedience. 
So verses we reference in a doctrinal statement are Matthew 28, verses 19 to 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to keep all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Or a verse like Second uh, Corinthians 13, 14, which says, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Or as we're studying Ephesians, you could add in uh, Ephesians 1 and, and just how the salvation is, is, is a blessing from God the Father through our Lord Jesus Christ and we're sealed by the, the Spirit. So all of these factor into the fact that, that God is uh, perfect in all his attributes, that he is one essence. Uh, he is simple, but he is at the same time Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So, let me just pause there. What I'm going to try to do is not just give you a data dump. Okay? Some of this can feel like that. I want you to think about what you, what you know about God through the Scriptures. How is God different from what you would expect? Maybe you've been a Christian a long time and you never thought of it from that standpoint. But some of you might be Christians just only a short time. Right? How is God different from what you would expect him to be like? Any thoughts? Only things about God. <laughs> Only things about God. So understanding the, that God had to punish sin uh, was something you didn't anticipate. Is what you're saying? In a, especially when you think about it, when you begin to understand on a personal basis rather than a generic, oh yeah, God's got to punish sin. But once you would punish Hitler. Right. So he punishes the bad guys, but to, to think that he'd punish like somebody that's well, maybe not so bad as Hitler. Um, is. So, so think about it. I mean, God, God is, is not a God of create, like that we have created. We, I talked about last time how we create God in our own image, even, even accidentally, so I don't want to retread that, that territory. But, but God is who he is, and he surprises us sometimes. I mean, even the one verse that I read, he creates calamity. That, that, you got to wrestle with that, right? He's the one that creates. That's his word, not mine. He's creating calamity. Now, there's a lot of reasons for that, and we, could, we can touch on that, but that's just one area that you might think, well, if I were to think about God or create God, I don't think I'd create a God that creates calamity. But he does in his very just way. Betsy, did you have something? Yeah, I think it's different. You know, reading the Bible makes you 
is approachable. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a really nice insight. You know, because we tend to think, especially in the Catholic Church, you have a high view of God, but also one of that He's unapproachable, and so hence they they encourage you to approach Him um, specifically through Mary, that Mary might then talk her son into accepting you somehow, and all that's misguided, but that He's approachable. God is approachable. That that's that's that is true, and it's awesome. If it weren't, we'd all be in trouble. But not only does he approachable, but he invites us. Like, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Not, I will give you three Hail Marys, and two this, and three that. He says, I will give you rest. You'll find, you won't find any false god that, that says that. No false religion will do that. They'll give you lots of stuff to go do. And we obviously know obedience in the Christian life is important, but the Lord invites us to come to him for rest, for relief, for uh, forgiveness, all that weighs heavy on us. That's excellent. Anything else? Um, Joe? I was surprised at how ultimately, how ultimately God forgives us. I worship the God of a big stick for seven years. It's never really Yeah, so just just really be allowing the truth that God truly forgives to sink in. Yeah. Absolutely. So it was the scripture that gave uh, absolutely. So, yeah, which is very different than us. I mean, forgiveness is not, it's not, I wouldn't say it's easy for God, but it's its not easy for us, and we tend to struggle with how to do that. But, but God, who knows everything about us, forgives us everything through Christ. Everything. Even the things you haven't confessed. Your future sins, past sins. I mean, it's just, it's phenomenal. And it's not because he's forgotten it. Like, sometimes we forget offenses against that people have done. And, and so it's not really a, I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful for my poor memory sometimes that I don't remember all those things. But God never forgets. So it is his choice never to bring your sin up against you or use it against you ever because of the fullness of payment in our Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's a truth that, that should not, we shouldn't let grow cold, <laughs> for sure. All right, anything else? Along that vein, I'm thinking, for God's wrath through the plague in Exodus, right? I mean, that'd be wrathful God, right? Yeah, he still loves us from the beginning. So really just they're speaking about the, the patience and the depth of love of God in, in spite of our in spite of our our sin. So it's good. I think there was another hand. Yes, Mila. 
realized that he was here. Yeah. Yeah, it's hard to fathom what uh, what that even means, that God is spirit. Because when you think of spirit, you probably think of Casper the ghost that you've seen in the cartoons or something like that. But that's still something. God is not material. So um, it's really difficult for us to, to comprehend. Obviously, Christ is now incarnate, has uh, the fact that he is eternally taking on our, uh, the likeness of men in a human body is simply uh, amazing that the God of the universe would condescend to eternally dwell in a human body. It's an ama amazing God that we serve. Is there something else? Marianne? It was personal. <laughs> but he made himself so real to me that I, I used to think for the Lord when I would pray that he was just so far away and I, you know, and I didn't know whether he had no idea who he was. And when he opened my eye, it was just yeah, I mean, it just, that's it great. Was like, there was no doubt in my mind that he was real and alive, yeah. and that that just overwhelmed me yeah. to this day. It's just why would I mean God? Yeah, yeah. He created everything, and he's going to you know speak to me through. Yeah, the God, just, the God of the universe, the High King of Heaven. Yeah is not only approachable, like Betsy said, but he actually comes to us. Like that he, he shepherds us, he comes to know us, comes to call us individually and draw us to himself. I mean, it's just, it's amazing. And he does it not because we have anything to offer him, but he chose to love us. Yeah, we don't, we don't deserve it. So what, what a phenomenal God that we, we serve and worship. It's really one of those who he does show up. He, I mean, you went to prayer to answer, um, like you said, you know, don't worry about what you need. Mm -hmm. Because I know what you need to seek my righteousness, and that always had to know the depth of his righteousness. He does reveal that. Yeah, yep. God, God is with us. Yeah. Right? And he cares for us and provides for us. And there's that, uh, there's the reality of who he is from his word, but also experientially, just knowing that he's working in your life, convicting you sin, helping you overcome sin, helping you to do the right things, helping you to understand his word. He is, he is actively involved in your life if you're, if you're in Christ. Now, let me shift gears just a little bit. How can we explain the Trinity? I, I declare, I read some scriptures that declare the, the essentials of the, of the Trinity, but, but how can we explain the Trinity? You might be talking to an unbeliever or uh, to a Muslim or to somebody else, and they're saying, like, like explain to me the, the Trinity or the, the Christian God. <laughs> He's like... Now they're setting you up, Hakum. Right? Yeah, I know. Hakum didn't say a thing. You guys were just setting them up. 
Yeah. So what's the problem of using an illustration like an egg? It's three separate parts. Yes, there are three separate parts. And like one of our one of our doctrines about God is the simplicity of God. He can't be divided into parts. Same, you run the same problem if you use the illustration of water in its three phases. Okay? So then you get into modalism. That's the, the doctrinal error of modalism, where God is sometimes the Father, sometimes the Son, sometimes the Spirit. But water isn't all three things at the same time. So how do you explain the Trinity? Keith? Well, I think we need to differentiate between... Uh describe and understand it, it just really is an understanding um, like what does it mean that Jesus is the eternal begotten is he, he's eternally begotten of the father what does that mean and what does it mean that the spirit eternally proceeds from the father and the son and we will dig into some of those yeah. when we get there I don't know I don't know and the and, bible doesn't really give us explanations but it it tells us that that is true and it describes God in those terms and so I, I you can you can make you can you can tell someone the statement this is this is who God reveals himself as and we take it on faith and I'm not sure if he gave us any more we'd actually even understand it yeah so that's what I would yeah, and what I wanted to draw out from you is exactly where you went, and that we really just have to stick to what is revealed in the scriptures. There are there are things that we want to know. We want to to know uh, how God is one and three, and God has not explained Himself on that level. So you just fall back on Deuteronomy twenty nine twenty nine. The things revealed belong to us, but there are hidden things that belong to God. <laughs> and I'd be glad to help. But in the end, you can just point them. You can point them to the sh to the surety, the trustworthiness of the Word of God. These things are true. And if you're dealing with a, talking with a Muslim, keep in mind most Muslims don't even understand the scriptural truths about the Trinity accurately. The Trinity is mistaught and misunderstood within Islam, so that they think that Jesus is somehow the biological product of. Mary and the Father, and that's not true at all. That's a doctrinal error. That is that's Mormonism, and so um, so. Just keep in mind that if you're dealing with Muslims or is you know somebody from from Islam, keep in mind they consider everybody in the West to be Christians. Everybody. The whole United States is Christian, right? From a Muslim point of view. And so they don't distinguish between true Christianity and, a, and what we would consider false Christianity or liberal Christianity. They just see Christianity. And so it sort of explains some of the reasons why they, why they react the way they do against the West, because they just see it as, as decadent. And that's all that's, they assume that's Christianity. So, Joe? I may have mentioned this in a previous session where. The, Allah is a God to be appeased. He is not a, a, a God in relationship with himself in perfect triunion as, as, our, as the God. Correct. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He's a big stick God. And 
Yeah, so there's... Yeah. Yeah, so the, you know, the, the God of the Muslims, Allah, is, is uh, they consider him to be the God of the whole world. And there's a whole big debate within even Bible translation. Is, is that God the same as the Christian God? And the answer is no. Okay. But you do have to keep in mind, in, 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 I recently learned in Bible translation, Allah was used as the word for God by, by Christians before Islam. So it's, it's not, there's the Allah of Muslim and Islam, and then there's just the generic word for God in, in uh, Arabic language before Muhammad even came around. So it's um, so there is one God, and it's going back to what the truth is. So we can prove that God is one essence. There's one God. We can prove that God is three persons. And even when you use the word person, it's an imperfect term because when we think of persons, we think of like you know, there's 50 people in this room. We're all separate. That's not the same concept as. The Father, Son, Holy Spirit. They are each an individual and yet one, one God. And no one can explain that. And if you meet someone that can explain it, run from them. Okay? Because they're going to mislead you. I think uh, it's better that we can't. Because that makes him more real, you know. He's I don't know, these like Allah or other religions that like they we have a complete explanation of our God. Is he really God? No. Right. How? Yeah, so if God is completely understandable, then is he really God? Yeah. Like creatures, in essence, creatures who are finite should not, really cannot, fully comprehend a God who is infinite. And not just infinite in, say, he's everywhere in the sense that he's omnipresent, but he's also infinite in wisdom, he's infinite in knowledge. Uh, we we just we just can't understand that. So really, that's that's where faith comes in. Our faith, it's not like we're placing our faith uh, in God without truth being revealed to us. It's just that as that truth is revealed, not all our questions are answered, and that's where faith comes in and says, "I, I don't know, but I'll trust I'll trust the God that's revealed in Scripture. I'll trust the Scriptures that reveal Him correctly." And accurately. So basically God has revealed himself to us. We would not have known that God was, was one or that God has in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit without his revelation. So we're trusting the word of God to instruct us and guide us in our thoughts about, about him. Uh, on that, does someone have to believe the Trinity to be saved? Does someone have to believe the doctrine of the Trinity to be saved? Okay, so some say Yes. Some are looking at me like, mm, uh, Keith's over here ready to oh, jump in. No? Nope. Oh, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll let those people know. I always answer. <laughs> <laughs> They'll let you too, so hold off. <laughs> what do you think? Yes? I think it depends because person come to saving faith, I don't think needs to understand that God is Christ and the Holy Spirit and they're co-eternal and co-equal and no, I just think 
need to repent of their sins and trust in the fact that Christ died for their sins. Now, that being said, that the person can be saved, but the person who is genuinely saved will come to the understanding that Jesus is God. Okay. And, and it took God to die for their sins. Right. Now, how much of that do they need to actually understand and know before God saves them? Well, here's, here's I'll, I'll, I'll agree with you uh, in, in the sense that someone does not have to believe the doctrine of the Trinity to be saved. What they have to have is, is an accurate view on who Christ is as Savior, God. Here's the caution with that. If someone rejects, like you, you give them the scriptural truth about the Trinity, and they reject that truth, that's, that puts them in an area, did they really, whatever God they believed in may not have been the true saving God, so they may not have even been saved. So I, I agree, and I kind of baited you into a, like a little bit of a, of, a, of a practical question. You don't have to believe the doctrine of the Trinity. That's a, that's a, that's a doctrine that comes later as you're taught in the Christian faith. But do you have to believe that Jesus is God? Well, absolutely. But you may not have processed like the, like that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are all one. That's, that's a doctrine that's essential to Christianity, so you can't reject it. But you may not, you may not fully understand when you're saying that, that Jesus is God. You may not fully understand that you're saying that he's co-equal with the Father and the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? So you, a, a, a child can believe Jesus is God and be saved, and, and yet if that child grows up to reject the Trinity, you know that they, they didn't really believe. They weren't really converted. They assented to some truth, but then later rejected that. So you can't reject the Trinity and be saved because you have a different God than what the Scriptures reveal. But you can be saved and not really fully comprehend, or I say comprehend, because none of us can fully comprehend it, but you don't have to understand what the scriptures teach about the Trinity initially at salvation. That makes sense. Any, any questions with that? So I want to be clear. Okay. Um, let's, let's deal with this a little bit. Let's have a little fun with this. How can we, can we prove the existence of God to unbelievers? Try to be practical here with these doctrines about God, who God is. Can we prove the existence of God to unbelievers? Akum's giving you a wishy-washy answer. Yes, yes and no. <laughs> I would just ask the question, do we have to? The Bible says that... Well, that's my question, yeah, Keith. The Bible says my question is, can we? Well, Not, do we have to? No, okay. <laughs> You're changing my question. Can we prove the existence of God? Okay. Okay. So Romans one tells us that they already know. There's, there's. We've talked about general revelation that that God makes Himself known to to all um, through the conscience. Again, it's one of those tricky questions. I I baited you into, Charlie. 
So there, there's, a, there's a lawyer for you, asking for, <laughs> asking for definitions. That's good. That's good. I'm glad you did that. Yeah. So. <laughs> no, I like it. That's good. Well, what I, what I wanted you to draw in, uh, Michelle, did you have something? Yes, Reese, sorry. Okay. Mm-hmm. Right. So point, pointing to the scriptures, right? Uh, we can. Here's here's where I want to say in a classical apologetic system would lean on uh, various arguments to try to prove God. And I'm not going to get into all these tonight, but there's ontological. That is, God's existence is proved by man's thought that God exists as the perfect being. It seems like a circular argument, but there are philosophical arguments that that you can prove God exists in an ontological fashion. Uh, There's a cosmological uh, argument that God exists. You could say that God's existence is proved by the created realm needing an ultimate cause. So here, you, you know, it's the, uh, you know, the intelligent design argument. That, uh, we have a design, you had, therefore, uh, you had to have a designer. You have creation, therefore, you have to have a creator. It's, it's that argument. Um, actually, I was confusing that. That's cosmological with the teleological. So the cosmological is, is really thinking about that there was... Um, there, there is a, a unmoved mover who started everything. Um, so that there, in order for that, that the creation be set into motion, it had to be somebody that was not moved to start everything in motion. Then you have the teleological, which is the one that God's existence is proven by design, uh, intelligent design. You could go to the moral argument. God's existence is proved by either uh, eth- by the ethical phenomena in man, that there is certain standards all over the world. Uh, murder is considered uh, wrong. And wh- why is that? Uh, you could say make an argument for the for the, um, I guess for the uh, existence of God based on that morality. So all of these have some strengths to them to help us understand who God is, but they all fail. They all fail to prove conclusively the existence of God. Um, and, and biblical doctrine, the, the white systematic theology book um, that uh, I've recommended in the past, has a good explanation of, the, of the, some of the problems with these arguments. And I'd just like to, to quote from that book here. Um, and it, it identifies the, 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 I guess it provides criticisms of those types of arguments for God, either intelligent design or looking at the morality or even which delves into the conscience. Those things are true, but they all fail to really prove God. Let me just read this. This comes from biblical doctrine. None of these arguments necessitate only one God, and none of them necessitate the God of the Bible. These arguments can point just as easily to multiple beings. None of these arguments necessarily point to something that is perfectly good or unchangeable, since the world is marked by so much evil and change. None of these arguments necessarily point to that which is perfect, since perfection might transcend what man can think, 
Since human ideas exist necessarily only in man, and since not all people have a common conception of perfection, and then none of these arguments prove that an infinite sequence of causes is inherently impossible, and none of these arguments necessitate that any original cause or designer is a god, unless one has first presupposed a definition of a god, unquote. Um, scripture, in the end, doesn't offer an explanation for God, for God's existence. How does Genesis start? In the beginning, in the beginning God created heavens and the earth. It offers an explanation for creation. It doesn't offer any proof or justification for the existence of God. It's just simply, God is simply just declaring his existence. So, he expects us to know that he exists, but he doesn't offer us like any proof or explanation of how he exists. So in the, in the end, we, we're just going back to scripture. Yes, the spirit works to convince us that the scriptures are true and accurate and trustworthy, but we, 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 our most trustworthy source are the scriptures. And I totally agree with Hakum. You just got to go back to Romans 1, where Romans 1 says that God has made himself plain. He's made himself evident. Everybody knows God, God exists. Even the most ardent, hardened atheist who insists that God does not exist knows that God exists. Now they, they spend so much time chasing him down. They spend so much time trying to silence him and chase him down. Exactly. So they, they've convinced themselves that he doesn't exist because they've suppressed the truth and unrighteousness. But he does exist. Hakum. Saving faith is a whole totally separate issue. Right. And just because you can convince somebody that, hey, there is a God out there, like you were saying, that it doesn't save anybody. You can still God gives right. the gift. Yeah. Right. So just the gospel is what's necessary for a person to get saving faith okay. and have their sins forgiven, enter into the new covenant. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, believing in God is not the same thing as saving faith. I mean, even the demons believe in God and shudder, not in worship, uh, but in fear of him. Not a worshipful fear at that. Uh, just think about Psalm 14, 11 says, The fool says in his heart there is no God. And that's also in Psalm 53, 1. The fool says in his heart there is no God. Uh, that's God's judgment upon them. You know, unbelievers suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Unbelievers have the law of God written on their hearts, but again, they've, they've so calloused their hearts that stop functioning as well, but, but they know it. So when you're evangelizing people, you don't have to prove God exists. You can just call them to repentance, tell them that God does exist, and they're going to they're gonna buck against that, but you can just confidently say, calmly say, you know God exists. And I know that because the word of God tells me that. So, again, you plant the seed. You don't have to win the argument. You plant the seed. God uses that to, to bring people to saving faith. In fact, sometimes if you insist on winning the argument, you lose the overall battle. So just plant the seeds in love and in truth and allow God to let that seed to germinate. Helen? Not to go to the side too far, but when you are evangelizing and unbelieving, like 
Saturdays at a university to smart kids. And, and he would just say, believe that the word of God is true. It's true that it explains Their first reaction is going to be, how is that viable? You know, that the Bible is true. The Bible is real. It's written by a bunch of men. I mean, without going too far into apologetics. Right. Where do you go from there? Yeah. Well, there are there are some. Again, the, I guess how you would answer the question of if someone challenges you regarding the trustworthiness of the Word of God, you have to be very discerning in that to know whether it's an honest question or not. If it's an honest question and they really don't know, well, there there are there's good information about how we got the Bible. The, the Bible itself explains itself, and that men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God, that every word is breathed out by the Word of God. And there's um, lots of books that explain the preservation of Scripture and, and its transmission. So if someone earnest, has earnest questions, then you can go help them find that out. But most of the time, especially on a college campus evangelism scenario, it's a smokescreen. And so it's like asking the question we asked last week, what about, you know, what is God going to do to that person on a remote island who's never heard about Jesus and he dies? You know, it's, it's, it's a similar thing. So in essence, you can choose to answer it, but if you do, just go be very short and curt. Well, the Word of God tells us that the Scriptures are reliable and trustworthy, and if they challenge you, then just challenge them to read it. Ask them if they've ever read the Scriptures. Most of the time, they will say no. And so you... You know, how can you judge something before you've read it? So that, that's how I would approach that. And that's how it is with people that maybe you profess, like you know, like my Catholic friends, you know, oh yeah, I've read this book on all these Eucharist miracles and all this. Have you read the Bible? Right. Yeah, usually they don't read their Bibles. Correct. Right. Yep, for sure. Anyway, with a college student, you can say, how much screen time do you have this week already? They're averaging three to five hours a day on screen time. I don't know average, but I, I, I know that's not unreasonable. And I know it's accurate. I've, I've asked some that are doing that. Three to five hours per day on screen time. And yet they don't have time, 15 minutes, to actually read the Word of God. And you can get on your phone. Maybe they're doing that. It would be great if they were. <laughs> Three hours of reading the Bible. That'd be great. Um, well, let me, just, let me just read this, and then I'm going to close in prayer. Uh, Isaiah 32.4 says this. The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are just, a God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. What an awesome God has chosen to reveal himself to us, to draw him to himself, to be approachable, uh, who is just and righteous in all his ways. And what a, what a mighty and awesome God we serve. Um, next week, we're going to look specifically about getting to the teachings about the Father, and we'll see how far we get, and then the Son and the Holy Spirit. But... This is just kind of a refresher. Remember last week we talked about, sometimes we just need to go back to the basics on 
remind ourselves who God is. And we're not, haven't, you know, charted new territory because there's not new territory to be chartered with God, but we need to remind ourselves of these things, of who God is, and that He um, makes Himself known to us, and He is a rock, and He is a redeemer, He's our Savior. And let's just pray together. Our Lord, we thank you for your loving kindness. We thank you that you are the rock and you are the redeemer, that you are approachable, that you are eminent and that you are with us and that you shepherd us and guide us, that you provided us to redeem us through the Son, Lord, working through the Spirit to, to regenerate us and to adopt us. Oh Lord, what can we say to these things but praise be to God? We, we just thank you for revealing yourself to us and ask you to help us to be faithful ambassadors uh, of God, that we would reveal uh, what we do others, what we have learned ourselves. We faithfully communicate that. Please help us to be uh, faithful in these things for your glory and honor. It's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the pulpit ministry of Medina Bible Church in Medina, Ohio. You can find church information, a complete sermon library, and other helpful materials at medinabible.org. This message is copyrighted by Medina Bible Church. All rights reserved.